legislative breakdown. It's a podcast from Boise State Public Radio. I'm Samantha Wright with Gary Moncrief, Boise State University political science professor. He spends all his spare time studying legislatures around the country, including Idaho's. In this podcast, we break down the Idaho legislature, what's happening, drilling down into the why and how it affects you. Gary, what's been going on at the legislature this week? Well, Samantha, it's the second week of the session, and so we're starting to see some bills dropping into the system. We've talked before about the unemployment insurance tax cut bill. That bill actually has already passed in the House very quick out of the box. That bill passed uh, unanimously in the House, as a matter of fact, and it's now in the Senate. Looks like that bill is going to just sail through at this point. On the other hand, there was a bill that uh, didn't make it out of committee this week, essentially a public disclosure bill for legislators who would you know, have to disclose their financial interests, etc. Idaho is one of only two states that doesn't have disclosure requirements at this point in that regard. And that bill didn't even get printed uh, in Idaho this week. Meanwhile, the Idaho health care plan, which otters uh, program, there's testimony on that bill in, in several venues in the legislature at this point, and it's, it's getting uh, vetted at this point. And at the very end of the second week, it looks like the Revenue Outlook Committee uh, is going to make some decisions about uh, what the revenue for Idaho looks like. We, we know what Governor Otter thinks it's going to look like, but what's really important here from the purposes of, of the Joint Finance and Appropriation Committee setting a budget is what this particular committee suggests the revenue is going to look like. Gotcha. So that's what's been happening at, uh, at the legislature this week. Okay, Gary, so let's talk a little bit about lobbying. Lobbyists can get a good rap or a bad rap, depending on where you are. A lot of people don't know what lobbyists do, including me. And uh, this week, we're going to try and find that out. Yeah, I think lobbying is one of those things where most of us have this, this kind of negative view because we have a stereotype of what a lobbyist is. And while that certainly is the case for some people, most lobbyists don't fit that stereotype very well. Uh, I don't know anybody who uh, has children who, and, and they say, boy, I, I hope my child grows up to be a lobbyist. But uh, a, number, a number of them do, and they turn out to be quite decent human beings most of the time, as it turns out. One of the things that I think it's important for us to understand is that lobbying is a little different in many state legislatures than it is in Congress. And the nature of the job of lobbying is very different because different kinds of lobbyists essentially have different bosses. For example, there's a one type of lobbyist that's known as a, a government relations lobbyist. And basically, this is a person who works for an agency. So they work for uh, the Association of Idaho Cities or the Idaho Association of Counties. So they're basically representing a government entity to another government entity, this being the legislature. Another type is, and probably the one that most people think about when they think about lobbying, is uh, what's known as a contract lobbyist, sometimes referred to as a hired gun. These are lobbying firms usually that have multiple clients, and so they represent a number of different interests in the legislature. A third type is what's known as a single client or in-house lobbyist, and this is a person who works basically for a company, for one corporation, for example. Uh, And then there's somebody known as a a single-issue 
lobbyists and they work for a particular issue like right to life or they work for a particular cause, a nonprofit, for example. And the person we're talking to this week is Lynn Darrington Elliott. And one of the things that attracted us to have Lynn on in particular is that she's worked in several of these different kinds of roles. Uh, She's worked as a government lobbyist. She's worked as a contract lobbyist. And she's worked as an in-house lobbyist, and she's worked as a nonprofit lobbyist. And so we get a lot of different perspective from somebody who's spent time in a variety of different legislatures. And many of our listeners will know Lynn by her maiden name, Lynn Darrington. She was a well-known lobbyist here in the state of Idaho for many years, for over 20 years, I believe. Lynn uh, now lives She's in uh, Colorado Lynn, I know you worked for uh, a multi-client agency, as we like to say these days. Uh, could you kind of give us a quick background on, on your experience? Yes, I'm happy to do so. Thanks, Carrie. Uh, so I started my lobbying career um, right out of graduate school in Salt Lake City at the University of Utah. And the professor I worked for came to me and he said the American Cancer Society of Utah has Uh, a lobbyist position open. And I was hired in Utah for one session. It was the third year a large coalition of stakeholders were trying to pass the no smoking bill in Utah. Fortunately, we were successful. I worked as part of a large coalition there. I was then hired to be a health policy consultant with the Utah Health Policy Commission. What I did was not so very different from what I did as a corporate lobbyist or a contract lobbyist. You were working very hard with members to help them understand what the recommended changes are, why you want to change the law or enact a law, and what the benefits will be and what the detriments are, if any. And Mm -hmm. how do you do that? How do you convince lawmakers to go along with the law that you're trying to to enact? I mean, I think people have this mental picture of you taking them all out to dinner. Uh, how does that work? <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a great question, Samantha. The number one thing that I think is important, whether you're a professional lobbyist, you're a person who's representing your own interests at the legislature, is to understand that Everybody has a personal agenda. Every legislator is there to do something good for their constituents. Everybody is there to make a change. And you can find common ground with every single legislator. And I think the most important thing is to spend enough time there to understand what makes an individual tick What are the issues that this senator or this House member care about? And you always try to find the hook in. Now, you're not always going to agree all the time, even with your friends. But I think in today's world, information is king. And by and large, legislators are seeking more information today than they were when I started in this industry 25 years ago. And so you need to have the information they want. Sometimes you'll make your case and sometimes you won't. But at the end of the day, that you hope that that the information that you provide, the benefits that you can convey will win the day. And what about Idaho? When you talk about the Idaho legislature, 
Uh, you were here for quite a while. What would you reflect on in the Idaho legislature when it comes to your lobbying job? I started my lobbying career in Idaho with Regents Blue Shield of Idaho. I was their corporate lobbyist. And as I look back to comparing being a corporate lobbyist to being a contract lobbyist where you're representing multiple interests, um, when you're a corporate lobbyist, you have a certain gravitas that I believe contract lobbyists don't have. Uh, You have one employer. You are in, generally speaking, a narrow sector of government, you really do become an expert. But as a contract lobbyist, you get diversity. You get diversity of clients. You get diversities of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the the luxury and the privilege of working for the March of Dimes. And because it's a nonprofit, how you go about getting your job done is very, very different. When you're a corporate or a contract lobbyist for business interests, you don't really worry about having enough money to do your job. And as an advocacy and government affairs representative for a nonprofit, you watch every penny because every penny is a dollar that has been contributed by a donor Mm -hmm. um, for the advancement of the cause. You've been doing this now for some time. Have you noticed a change in terms of the way women as lobbyists are considered? Are there more women as lobbyists than there were when you started out? Is their role more expansive than it was, or is it basically the same? Well, the short answer is yes and yes. Um, There are more women than when I started. Um, I started my career in the mid-90s in Utah. There were very few female lobbyists. I came to Idaho with three years of experience under my belt, and I'm really glad I did because I was able to stand on my own merit. But I remember my first meeting um, about four days after I was hired, and it was an interim committee meeting, and there were very few women there. And I compare even when I left Idaho in 2015 to when I started there in 1996. Um, There are a lot more women. Now, that being said, you have to put in the work to be successful as a lobbyist, any kind of lobbyist. Honesty and integrity is first and foremost. You have to be completely trustworthy. Your word has to be good. And you have to always give good information because the last thing you want is a legislator to use your information on the floor or in a committee and have someone call them out that that it's in fact an error or it's false. And I've seen lobbyists in two different states who have, I don't know whether it was intentional or unintentional, misled legislators, and their career suffered as a result. Do you have any insight into the Idaho legislature this time around, uh, this particular year? Have you been paying attention at all? Samantha, I still, since I've left, I still will text friends of mine two or three times a week to find out, you know, what's really going on because the Idaho legislature is near and dear to my heart. You know, I don't really have any insight because I think, you know, in the the two and a half years that I've been gone, there have been just a lot of changes. And I know that that the legislature is facing even more changes with so many retirements coming up in 2018. So I don't have so much insight on this specific legislature other than citizen legislatures, I think, give people an accessibility. And I'm not just talking about government affairs professionals, but individuals. Our legislators in Idaho 
Utah, Montana, to Wyoming, even to some extent Colorado, are very accessible people. They're accessible to the constituents, to business interests, and other public interests who need to talk to them. I would say that's truly a strength. I would say that one of the weaknesses that Idaho has that they didn't have in the mid-90s is you don't really have a viable minority. I truly believe, having been in Colorado, which is, I think, the most evenly divided legislature in the nation, or one of them, that you do get better policy. You get better policy and better budget compromises coming out of legislatures that have a strong minority. So I would say diversity within the legislature from a political persuasion perspective is is key to getting better policy. Lynn, we, we want to thank you so much for, uh, yeah, for being on the show. Just terrific. Thanks so much, Lynn. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Legislative Breakdown is a podcast from Boise State Public Radio. I'm Samantha Wright with BSU political science professor Gary Moncrief. Our original music comes from local artist and composer Will Hall of the bands Nude Dude and Like of the Dog. Special thanks this week to Lacey Daly, our digital content coordinator. And don't forget, it's your legislature. Thanks for listening.